This is episode number 155, Katie Arnold on grief, her book, Running Home and Ultra Running Life Lessons. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and sports science to help you be better every day. When you come up against the fact that it's not going to be easy all the time, and that's what running or any kind of endurance sport teaches you, is that there's going to be times when it feels really hard and it sucks or you're scared or you're lonely or you're mad and don't want to do it. But if you can just stay with it and go into that feeling rather than stopping or giving up, that builds this muscle, this confidence muscle inside. Thank you so much for being here today, you guys, and sharing your ears with us. We really appreciate it. And it's so awesome to be able to share such great stories on the podcast. And I really appreciate all the reviews that you guys have been leaving. And I also really appreciate those of you contributing to my work financially on Patreon. And just a couple bucks a month makes a big difference to help this show continue to grow and continue to keep going on. If you want to be notified of new episodes every week, I have a free newsletter. It's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter if you want to sign up so that you can hear about the Crush It Mondays and the Thursday episode. And if I have any other news. So if you want to sign up for that, check it out, sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. Today's episode has been a long time coming, and I'm really excited that I got to record with Katie Arnold. Katie Arnold has taken a million steps on a crooked path to get to here. She is the 2018 Leadville 100 trail running champion, and she was 46 years old when she won that, and is the author of the incredible book and memoir, Running Home. She is also a contributing editor and former managing editor at Outside Magazine. She's the creator of a monthly column for Outside called Raising Rippers, and it's all about raising adventurous kids. Katie's foray into ultra running didn't happen until her 40s, so if you think it's too late, it's never too late. In fact, her first marathon was by accident while interviewing Dean Karnazes for an Outside Magazine article. She ran next to him with her audio recorder as she interviewed him. Isn't that crazy? Not only is Katie now an elite ultra runner, but she has many accolades, including Leadville 100, 2018 Jemez Mountains 50 miler, 2014 Trans Rockies three-day trail run, Jemez Mountains 50K, and the Mount Taylor 50K. She has also won the Angel Fire 100K twice and set the course record. So this woman knows how to run. Her writing extends past her book and Outside Magazine. She has appeared in the New York Times, ESPN The Magazine, Marie Claire, Runner's World, Elle, Men's Journal, and many others. And we talked about some really interesting things in this podcast. We talked about working for Outside Magazine, but primarily we talked about her book. And her book is about losing her father and the impending, all-encompassing grief that comes along with that, and how she healed through running. We talked about the value of time, especially when it becomes knowingly shortened, insight into dealing with grief, the difference between fear and anxiety, some of her views on raising adventurous children, her smile and flow mantra, running for joy versus running for external validation of competition, which is actually something we touched upon with the David Roche podcast last week. And we also talked about the legacy that she wants to leave behind. Definitely don't miss this awesome episode. Katie is super inspiring, and you might even want to listen to this one twice. Katie and her publisher are offering a giveaway of her book, Running Home, and it can be shipped internationally. The only thing that you have to do is follow her Instagram, which is Katie Arnold, and leave a review on this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And once you've done that, just take a screenshot of your review and send me your Instagram handle. Just send me an email, sonya at sonyalooney.com, and you will be entered to win a copy of this book. All right, so let's get into this great episode. Here is Katie Arnold. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thanks so much. I'm psyched to be on. It's always really fun whenever I get to chat with someone after basically like scouring through their life on the internet (laughs) and through their books and then getting to actually talk to the person. (laughs) You're well armed, I think. (laughs) Ask me anything. (laughs) 
Well, the thing that I'm most excited about, actually, is that you live in New Mexico, because that's where I'm actually, I don't live there anymore, but that's where I grew up. Oh, great. Whereabouts? Yeah, I grew up in Albuquerque. Nice. Wow. How long have you been gone? Uh, About 15 years or 14 years. I'm 36. So I I lived there until about till I finished my undergrad. So I guess I was 22. And then I moved to Boulder for eight years. And then I moved up to British Columbia. Great. Great. Yeah. So I loved in your book all the different New Mexico references because I was like, oh, and my family still lives there. So I go every year. It's beautiful here. And I think New Mexico is kind of that like hidden, you know, certainly in the world of like endurance athletes and training, which is definitely not the only world I move in, but it's kind of under the radar. And I like that. I like that we have amazing trail access and high altitude, but it's not, doesn't have that scene, that super pushy, you know, that like the scene where you're always just pushing, pushing, pushing. You can kind of just do your own thing. That's really served me. I mean, I've been here 24 years and I felt that right away. I write about this in Running Home, my book, but I I write about that feeling I had when I first got to New Mexico. It certainly should not have made any sense to me, the landscape, because I was from New Jersey. But you know, as soon as I got here, I felt that I had come home in a way. It was really interesting. Yeah. Were you living in Manhattan when you moved to New Mexico? I was. I had spent almost two years in New York City after graduating from college. I did that sort of, you know, required like two year stint in the city, knowing full well from day one that I did not belong in a major metropolitan area that I, I, I spent half my time in New York trying to get out of it. But yeah, I moved from New York. It was a great experience. Perfect first job where you just, you know, learn what it is to be in the workforce and be accountable. But I, I needed bigger spaces and a wilder life. Yeah. For those of you listening who haven't seen or been in New Mexico, it's characterized by like a really incredible sky, like a large sky with sunsets. And whenever it's sunny there, it's sunny like it's sunny nowhere else. Mm, um, and just sure. the, the space is just so wide open and it's a really underpopulated state. So it's just, it's just an incredible place to be. And you mentioned in your book, it's called land of entrapment for a reason. Mm-hmm. Right. People come and think they're going to stay a week or not even their car breaks down. I've met so many people. It was like, well, my car broke down and that was 30 years ago and I'm still here. My story was not exactly like that, but sort of, I came out to be an editorial intern at Outside Magazine, which is based here. And that was supposed to be a three-month stint. And of course, I was hoping it would become something more, but there were certainly no guarantees. And three months turned into six months. And then I was hired. And you know, it's been 24 years. My mother's finally stopped asking when I'm coming home, though. <laughs> I think she finally gets it. I am home. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it must have been a really interesting time because I'm guessing it was in the 90s that you moved. And in your book, you said when you started working there, it was all men and it helped if you acted like one and could keep up like one and Mm -hmm. also wrote like one. And I know that times have changed a bit since then, which is awesome. But like, how was that for you and how has that evolved? That's a great question. It was not all men by any means, but it was more men than women. And the women who were there, as I write, you know, there was this feeling that this was overwhelmingly, and it was stated that it was a men's magazine. So you felt this pressure or expectation that you would play like a guy and write like one. And you had to, you know, it would help to have this sort of wry sense of humor that was prevalent in the magazine, kind of one raised eyebrow and everything. And for sure, like when we would go out mountain biking as a group, you know, with outside friends, you know, I definitely felt like I had to keep up with the guys and I liked it. I I mean, I loved keeping up and I loved pushing myself. So it suited me. But, you know, you can only do that so long. And the more I worked it outside and the more I began writing for the magazine, the more I felt my own voice emerging. And that voice was not like the voice of the magazine. And so it became apparent, oh, gradually over time, but after about 10 or 11 years at the magazine that I really wanted to write my own stories and do it in my own voice, which is just different. You know, I write very much from my heart, if you've read my book, and it has to come from this deep feeling place inside. I I sort of live my life that way. And I'm certainly an athlete that way from the, from my heart rather than my head. And 
it wasn't that that was discouraged at outside, but it, it just wasn't fostered or encouraged. So I wanted to spread my wings and it was fantastic to grow up at the magazine. And then it was really thrilling to sort of spread my wings. So I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you like to write from the heart and I'm the same way. I've been a writer for quite some time, not on the same level as you, but (laughs) um, (laughs) how do you write whenever your heart is struggling? Because I mean, whenever your heart is struggling, it's almost easy to write, but like getting into that zone, whenever you have to write from almost an emotional place can be really hard. So how do you do that? I kind of stick with it. And so I know that I'm getting close to something important or meaningful when it does feel charged and hard. Not always hard, but there's some energy around it. And it could be resistance, like, oh, I don't want to write this scene because it's really painful. Or like I had one of those when I was writing Running Home. And it's sort of early in the book. And I'm talking about the beginning chapters are sort of a flashback to my childhood and this kind of big schism that happened in my family when my parents split up. And as I was writing that, I was up at a writing residency in Wyoming. So I had like complete space and time and freedom to just immerse myself in my writing. And I realized that I was going to be writing this scene. And this was the scene that where we, our family effectively broke up. So I could tell that in this case, the running, my desire to go for a run and go out into the sagebrush hills was not in service of my writing, but as a way to avoid having to write this painful scene and in a way relive it. In that moment that I realized it, I knew that I had to stay in my chair. And so I just forced myself to sit in my chair and write through it. And that's really my strategy is to write. And and that's what I would say to other writers and it really applies to everything in life is just stay with it, keep going and go into it or toward it rather than away. And once I did that, I felt the power of the scene that I was writing. And I knew that though it was painful for me to relive it, that I was expressing something very true and essential to who I was. And ultimately, as a writer, that's what you want to get to the truth. And I don't mean factually, although that's nice, too, but like the truth or the essence And often that comes with just going toward the pain or the discomfort or the resistance. I love that. And another part of your book that I thought was really powerful was whenever you were talking about how what actually happened, like the moment your dad died. And this is something Mm -hmm. that I, I would love to talk about almost for myself, because Losing a parent is one of my greatest fears and the grief Mm -hmm. that will ensue with that, especially both my parents, but especially my dad. And it's something Mm -hmm. that I it causes me a lot of anxiety, even though, you know, it's going to happen to everybody. Yes, Um, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I'd love to talk about what happened because people listening maybe haven't read your book yet. So like what happened and how did you recover from this whole process? Sure. So really, this is kind of the the heart of the story of running home. My father and I were very close, though I had grown up separate from him. We were kind of kindred spirits creatively, and he loved the outdoors, though I love this part. He was not an athlete, right? He was an adventurer, an explorer. He was a photographer for National Geographic. So moving in the world that way was what he did and who he was. And and so in 2010, just after I'd given birth to my second daughter, My dad was diagnosed with kidney cancer, and it was really rapid. His decline kind of was as fast as my daughter was growing. So I had this, you know, life and death and joy and sorrow kind of on a collision course, which really is what life is. Those things are always happening to us. And it's sort of this beautiful, like the dualism, right? The two sides of life just were all mashed up together And I tried to be as present as I could for my father, though I lived in Santa Fe and he was in Virginia. So I would fly back and forth with my new baby and try to be there for him. And he died, I think it was like less than three months, less than 12 weeks after he was diagnosed. So it was quite shocking. I mean, it wasn't instant, obviously, but and he had time to prepare and we had time to prepare. But nevertheless, it was a shock to the system. And my grief really manifested as anxiety after he died. And actually, even when he was dying, I 
I didn't know that grief was a physical sensation. I knew it was an emotional response, but I didn't know that I would feel a certain way. And I had this intense heaviness on my body and all my joints hurt and everything hurt. I didn't know that grief was physical like that. And so I thought something was wrong with me and I thought I was dying. And that was really the story that would persist for about 18 months after my dad's death was that I had this intense anxiety that I was dying and that I was ill with something. And part of that is just being a new mother or a new parent. I think that you suddenly understand your mortality in a way that you might not have before. What was once abstract and sort of pleasantly so is kind of right in your face because you've brought this precious, you know, vulnerable life into the world. And now you need to keep it alive and stay alive yourself. And so Something about losing my father right at that point kind of threw me off my center. And I had this intense anxiety. And so the way I managed it, because I live in Santa Fe, there's tons of healers and natural healers. And I'm a really open person. And I tried a lot of them. And some things worked and some things didn't. But what worked the best was just running and running for through nature. So into the mountains, you know, not, not just around the street. It was something that I needed to be in nature, part of something much bigger than myself. And um, so the book really tells the story of kind of witnessing and being witness to my father's death and how that stirred in me both this intense anxiety and just as strong curiosity to learn more about who my father had been and why he was such an important influence in my life. And so so as I'm discovering who I was as a runner and I'm sort of pushing myself farther than I thought possible, I'm simultaneously kind of understanding and discovering things about my father that I had never known. Some of them were painful. Some were secrets that he'd never revealed. And, and so it was really this great unfolding in my life. And how did the value of time change? Because I always think about this, like if someone is diagnosed with a terminal illness, suddenly, like we all have an expiration date. But the thing is, Mm -hmm. is none of us know what that date is. And the same goes for those around us. But all of a sudden, when it's clear that you're about to lose somebody, time changes a little bit. But whenever you live apart, like, part of me is like, well, you'd want to spend every single second with them, but then part of you can't do that. And then maybe that person doesn't want you to do that. So like, how did you mm-hmm. look at the currency of time through this process while he was still alive? Oh, that's a, Yeah, that's a great question. Time takes on an incredible quality when you're in either grief or new parenthood. I think those are the two times in your life when you sort of step out of the normal parameters of time, which feels very linear, often fast, like time's unfolding quickly. You're sort of on this straight line through time. But when you have a new baby, so those both of those things were happening to me at the same time. So things got slow down a lot. So when you have a new baby, you know, you're totally out of the normal flow of life. I mean, you're on the baby schedule, waking, feeding, you know, feeding more. And it's sort of this delicious quality of being slow. And I've said that to people who are friends of mine who are about to have a baby. I'm like, listen, you will feel like you're going insane sometimes because you just want to be in the main sort of pulse of time and predictable and you have a schedule. But Actually, when it's done and when you're back in the normal world and the baby's a certain age, you will miss it, right? Because it's it's rare that we get to step out of time. And so grief is just like that. I mean, when you know, like we knew pretty early on that my father's cancer was terminal and that he didn't have that much time. And so time took on a very heightened quality. So it seemed to slow down when I was with him. And part of it was that he was not, we were not moving or doing right. We were just being together. My dad was in a lot of pain and was in bed, you know, was pretty much spending all day in bed almost right away. And so I would sit with him and read to him. He was kind of on a lot of pain medication because he was in a great, great deal of pain. And so he was in and out of consciousness So sometimes he would kind of snap to and tell me his memories and other times they would come out like as dreams. And I was just tried to be present to him. And I, because I've been a writer for so long, and this is just how I 
live in the world, I always have a notebook with me. And so I wanted to write everything down. I didn't at that point at all have any idea that I would write a book about it. It was not, you know, goal oriented exercise. It was just kind of the way my father had taught me to be, which is be a great observer of life and capture those moments that so often pass us by without notice. And and as a photographer, he really was so great at that catching those little moments and he caught them on film, but my, you know, my medium was writing and had been since I was very young. So I was, I was just, you know, taking notes and being present. And I think that's one of the great gifts of, of dying. If there is one is that it really brings you this heightened awareness and you're kind of all my senses were open because I wanted to capture everything and I wanted to imprint it because I knew the time was running out. And like, while you have that time, you're spending that time with that person. How do you not let the sadness of what is going to happen? Like, how do you not let that overtake the joy of the present moment? Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, they're both and right at the same time, simultaneous. And that's sort of why it is such a beautiful human experience, because they're not separate. And so at the same time that I was reading, you know, to my father, and there's a scene in the book where he's kind of recounting this road trip assignment he'd taken for National Geographic through New Orleans, you know, and I was listening intently. At the very same time, I was feeling that intense weight of sadness. And it was like a film on my skin, like a layer of grit of sadness that all I wanted to do was scrub it off. And like, I couldn't wait to leave because I felt this heaviness in the house and, and the heaviness was not, you know, was my grief. But I had this feeling that if I could leave, you know, or when I couldn't wait to get back to Santa Fe sometimes, that sounds horrible, but it was so physical, like this pressure on me of my sadness that when I left, or even when I was there, I would like try to take these hot showers because I thought like I could scrub it off my body. And, you know, one time I came home to Santa Fe and there's, you know, this really nice Japanese health spa up on the mountain. And I remember I even went up there and got one of those like fancy exfoliation treatments where they rub your body with salt, which is so painful if you have like the smallest cut. So, you know, she's rubbing my body with salt and I'm like, oh, it's going to scrub it off the sadness, whatever this is on me. And, you know, she wiped me down and I got up and it was like, of course it was still there. So they're both, you know, you're having those feelings right at the same time. Like I need every minute I can get with you, dad, but I'm also like, I have to get home to Santa Fe. I had a two-year-old at home here and my husband. And so I was totally torn, which was a great metaphor. I mean, very apt for my life because I spent my childhood traveling between two families, my mother in New Jersey and my dad in Virginia kind of torn between the two, my loyalties, you know, I had two houses, I didn't ever quite know where I belonged. So it kind of, you know, that continued. And like, after the fact, like, it's been some years now, Mm -hmm. do you still think about how you're spending your time and what time means to you? Because it's, it's like, whenever you get sick, you're like, Oh, I just or injured. Like, I just want to be healthy again. And it's so easy Mm -hmm. to take for granted, like our health or the ability to use our body. And I kind of feel like the same thing happens with time. So like, do you remind yourself all the time? Like, (laughs) no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have totally tapped into like, I think time is sort of the, the overarching theme of this book and like what time is. Because yes, I think about it always. And for me, this losing my dad really was sort of this first great like waking up in my life to the fact that we have these moments right? And in our life, we have these moments and they happen all the time. And most of them are completely ordinary, even mundane. But if we slow down enough or are present, like awake enough and observant enough to see them, we'll see that they're actually beautiful and ordinary and like sublime all at the same time. You know, that was what my father had taught me to look out for in life he wasn't looking for the extraordinary achievements or those like incredible moments. But as a photojournalist, you're trying to capture just that moment that's here and gone, the essence of something. So I had always known that. But then when he died, and I, as I was just saying, I went into this state of sort of hyper awareness. I began to see life and like all the details more clearly. And so now I 
yeah, you, there is that feeling of you want to rush through the unpleasant parts. Like I've been injured a few times as a runner and, you know, you just want to get through it so fast. Or there's parts, if you're, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners are parents, but there's times in parenting where you're like, get me through this, the baby's teething or, you know, having tantrums or just phases, right? There's always a phase and you just want to blast through and get to the other side. But I've learned, and, you know, my dad's death and also running has taught me not to rush through those. So rather than trying to fight time, like speed it up or slow it down, be in time, sort of ride it through. And we cause ourselves so much less suffering when we are just present and open to what's happening in our life right now versus looking ahead or sort of regretting the past. Yeah, I mean, time is easier said than done, of course. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. And like time is something I think about always, because Uh in my opinion, it's our most valuable asset that we have, because everybody has the same amount of time in one day, 24, I mean, hopefully (laughs) 24 hours, everybody gets 24 hours. And how you spend that, it matters. And because you can't get it back. And you can't buy time. And my biggest pet peeve is when people are wasting my time. Because it's so valuable. And just like the best gift that you could give to somebody is your undivided attention for a period of time. Yes. And, you know, I think that time isn't just about doing all the time, you know, always being productive or doing things. Though I do have very high energy and I am able to sort of get a lot into my 24 hours. But really important sort of generative time, it sometimes is spent doing nothing or doing something that is not directly like aimed at a goal. And that's been a big shift in how I run and how I compete and really how I write and live, which is not trying to achieve something specific, but just making a wholehearted effort in the moment and opening to what will happen as a result. And so sometimes, you know, for me, part of my writing process is just going for a walk and daydreaming and letting my mind wander. And certainly that's why running is such an important part of my writing process, because it is like a moving daydream sometimes. And I get ideas that I, you know, might not have otherwise gotten when I'm out in nature on the trails. And so it's okay if you're not, and it's important even if your time is not always, you know, looking like it's super productive because it is, even when you're in that sort of lull or we all have these ebbs and flows, right? Like we're flowing in intense creativity or high performance, but then, you know, after a race or an event or whatnot, a book publication, you have this ebb, right? And I've learned, and this is kind of what grief has taught me, that even those ebbs, those lulls or what I call eddies, right? When you're in the river and you're sort of spinning around in this eddy, even those eddies are very productive, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if you feel like you're just going in circles and it's a very generative time and things are working on the inside, like your creativity, your imagination. And so even though we're not often taught how to sort of accept those lulls. We want everything to be the high highs, you know, and the awesome progress. Those eddies are very fruitful and you need the ebb to find the flow. Yeah, there is this yoga class I was in. It was probably like 10 years ago. And what the person said really stuck with me. (laughs) He said, there's a wisdom in being stuck. And it's it's hard to feel like, where am I supposed to go next? Or like, I have this really icky feeling And like you said, Mm -hmm. you were trying to wash it away or just get away from Uh, it. And in ultra running, especially like, man, you you feel really bad for certain periods of time Mm -hmm. and you just have to keep moving forward. Yeah, that is what has been the greatest thing about becoming an ultra runner is learning to tolerate that discomfort and uncertainty. I mean, I think ultra running or ultra endurance, you know, gets a bad rap for, you know, it's super painful or it's, you know, self-destructive or what. It's not. It's essentially a very joyous thing for me. And but there will be pain and there will be discomfort at certain points. And there's definitely uncertainty. And I write about that a lot in my book. Like I would set off on these long runs most of the time alone because I was grieving and I needed I just needed to be alone. 
And you never know what will happen on a run ever. I mean, you can know you've trained or you're prepared or you looked at the map or you've cached your food in various places or you know where you're going to get water. Like all those things are why I love ultra running in the mountains because you have to be creative and plan. But ultimately when you, you know, at the start of a run and certainly a race, you also have to surrender to not knowing and to the unknown of what might happen. Like just the other day I was up on the mountain and I've been running a lot of high altitude training runs because I must've been a raven in my last life. I'm so happy when I'm above tree line. Anyway, I've been running like every week, kind of this really solid running where it's not even about running. It feels like building something up deep on the inside of me. That's my favorite kind of running when it's not about the running. The running gets so good because it's not the focus. But I've done the runs up, you know, every week for the past eight weeks. And you start to feel not complacent because I was having a great time, but, you know, a little sort of numb to the possibilities of things happening. And my dog and I were charged by a bull as we were coming down through the ski area. They can graze cattle on public lands. And this bull came up and starts bumping my dog with his horns. And, you know, in all the scenarios that I picture, that was never really one of them. And we had to make like a sudden move and kind of get away. And I stepped funny into a hole because I was sort of spazzing out and I hurt my knee a little bit. It's not serious, but it's like, those are the things that that kind of uncertainty, that kind of discomfort of like, oh my God, I'm in this situation. What do I do? But you just have to keep going. And that's why running is such a good metaphor for life is that it's, it is about staying with the discomfort or just the unknowing, like, what is this all about? Like in my grief, I couldn't see ahead, right? I ne- there was never a moment where I was like, I'm going to, you know, start running ultras because I'm, you know, to heal myself from my grief. And then I'm going to start racing and, and then I'm going to write a book. Like I never saw that far <laughs> in front of me. Right. And it's just, when you're in grief, same with being a new mother or new parent, you're just in this bubble and you're kind of just putting one foot in front of the other. And it's okay not to know where you're going. It's sort of beautiful sometimes if you can allow it, because I think that's when all these interesting detours can happen and they can lead you to places you never would have imagined. Like I never would have imagined that I would become an ultra runner and be competitive and win Leadville. You know, if I'd had this sort of straight and narrow plan, I might've missed all those things. Yeah. And another thing that I find really interesting. So I I do ultra endurance mountain biking. I was a runner before that. So I totally understand and relate with everything that you're saying is that things can change so quickly. Like what you Mm -hmm. just said, you could come across a bull or like on the bike, like you could have something catastrophic happen to your bike, or you could have a a sudden crash and your experience of this like free, amazing, happy feeling can change on a dime. Instantly. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times you're out there by yourself. So you have to figure out like what you're made of and how you're going to deal with what's happening to you and having those experiences out there it teaches you how to do it in your daily life where 100%. That's such a great point. And like people that don't have that experience, like this is why I think everyone should be outside having an adventure of some kind is because it really teaches you like it makes things in life seem so much easier. And I don't know about like really heavy things like grief, but whenever things happen during your day, like you just learn how to deal with it on a much different level because you've already dealt with it out on the trail. Yes, I think that translates so directly and it gives you this deep inner confidence. I think that's what I was talking about the other day. I mean, just now when I was saying how these runs up high have been about something deeper than running, it gives you that inner confidence, that sort of like raw inside, like that um, super solid backbone that can help you. Like it helps me 100% in my writing of like being true to my voice, right? Like if I know I'm running and writing from that deep internal place and it's not about, you know, getting on the bestseller list, or it's not about winning a race, but it's about like coming from within, then I'm so strong and I can handle whatever comes up. And it just gives you this stamina, this emotional stamina and mental stamina for problem solving that you might not otherwise have in your real life. So I'm with you. I think everyone should spend time outside having adventures, going a little beyond their comfort zone. It doesn't have to be epic, right? There's lots of people who live in cities and who are probably listening right now, like, well, how do I get outside or I'm not in shape or whatever, but it's like, find your little edge and push just beyond it. 
and everyone's edge is different, right? And so it's going to look different for every person. But if you can find, and I write about that in the book, The Thin Edge, if you can find your thin edge and just live a little bit more of your life on it, I think the benefits are huge. Yeah. And you mentioned the word confidence and that I've spent a bunch mm-hmm. of time doing research about this because when I was younger, like I was picked on and insecure and all those things growing up. And I started running at the end of high school and I decided I was going to run a marathon and I was a high achiever in everything I'd ever accomplished in my life, but I still wasn't confident in myself. And it wasn't until I started running mm. that I found confidence and it changed the way that I viewed myself and it changed the way that people treated me. So I was trying to figure out what is it about running or endurance sports that causes people to be more confident? Because you've heard this many times and I'd love your opinion. But the most powerful thing that I've found is you learn self-acceptance in some ways because you're just out there and you have to accept yourself like there's no other way. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And that's what I learned sort of becoming an ultra runner after my dad died is that there were lots of days when I didn't want to go and, or when I got on the trail and like, I literally within the first five minutes wanted to lie down and like cry in the dirt. <laughs> and I didn't want to leave my children and who are babies still, you know, and it felt very heavy. There was, you know, just as many days when it felt like a relief. But I think when you come up against the fact that it's not going to be easy all the time, and that's what running or any kind of endurance sport teaches you is that there's going to be times when it feels really hard and it sucks or you're scared or you're lonely or you're mad and don't want to do it. But if you can just stay with it and like I was saying before, go into that feeling rather than, you know, stopping or, or giving up that builds this muscle, this sort of confidence muscle inside. And there were many times, like I said, that I was crying or didn't want to go or, you know, was so sad but I don't think I've turned around once, right? I just kept going. And, you know, it wasn't that I was like being heroic or fast or like was having an amazing day. It was just that I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. As simple as that sounds, it really does work. Yeah. And I want to talk about the thin edge that you just mentioned, because in Mm -hmm. your book, it's more about fear and anxiety. And I loved Mm -hmm. how you defined what the difference is between the two and everybody experiences those. So can you elaborate more on those on fear and anxiety? Sure. Fear is something in the moment, like you come across someone, like if you're out walking at night and someone comes up behind you and you have a bad feeling about that person, or you riding your bike and like a driver runs a red and almost misses you like that in that moment is that fear that goes off in your body and helps keep you safe. And that's important, that sort of reaction. But anxiety is anticipating something bad happen bad happening that may or may not. So anxiety is like the fear of the fear coming. And that is not a very productive state of being, nor is it very helpful. And so you can get stuck in that worry brain. And that's really what happened to me was that I kind of got in that anxious mode. And I think a lot of it was hormones of being postpartum and sleep deprived and grief all mixed up, but it was this, you know, very negative feedback loop going on in my mind. And so that can be hard to break. And, and really, as I said, that the running, when I would go for the run, it was the only time that I could sort of move beyond my thoughts because, you know, if you do anything for a while, it's sort of that the repetitive motion of my body moving through nature up the trail, like the arms moving, the legs moving, that cadence allowed me to sort of let go of my thoughts. And it didn't happen right away, like the first five or 10 minutes of any run, anytime still, I'm usually making a to-do list or, you know, thinking about a deadline or stewing over a problem. But as I settled into the run and to the rhythm of my body, it was really like an embodied feeling of just like letting my body take over. My brain could take a break. My brain didn't have to work so hard on the worries. And that was where I found my relief. And as I said, like nature was a big part of it. Just being out in the mountains that are so big and old and the trees, right? Somehow I was feeling that like, all of that nature and landscape had seen everything before, right? And nothing that I was experiencing was new 
or particularly noteworthy, which isn't to diminish it, but it just put it in perspective. And it was a consolation almost like to be out there where my problems seem small compared to the sort of vastness of the natural world. So those two things really helped. Yeah, I love those perspectives. There's a lot of really cool, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them all, but like lots of awesome studies about how nature is so important for us um, yeah, for, for space completely. and for healing and just how being in nature, like you don't even have to be doing extreme things, but just Mm-mm. how being in nature is so important for every single person. Oh, it's completely essential. And, you know, there's that Japanese concept of forest bathing, where it's just this healing you know, energizing, invigorating, very creative space of being in nature. And, and we've become very disconnected as a large, you know, most of us in America have been disconnected from that and don't spend nearly as much time outside as we should. And again, I think your point is mine too, that you don't have to be out doing epic things. You don't need like a 12,000 foot mountain in your, out your back door, or you don't need to be, you know, surfing a huge wave, but like you can find this relationship with the natural world and almost anywhere, you know, and growing up in New Jersey actually taught me that because I was always a really physical child and loved being outside. I think that was because my home life was kind of complicated. I had a new family and wasn't sure where I fit in. So my stress relief or the pressure release was being outside. And I would just ride my, I write about this in the book, but I would ride my bike around the block pretending I was a detective or I would just go to the local park. And this was suburban New Jersey. So there's not a lot of open space. There's not mountains. There's not, you know, incredible public lands, but I nevertheless developed this love for being outside right there in my own backyard. And I think that's just proof that you can really do that anywhere. And in my writing for outside where I, you know, write about bringing up adventurous kids, I always talk about, it's really, it's not about like the size of the adventure or like the extreme nature of it or where you go, but it's about having a relationship with your world. And if your world out the door is a suburb or a farm or, you know, whatever, a city, Like, how can you interact with that, you know, on a daily basis is the most important thing. Because that helps you build the relationship with yourself and your mind. And, you know, you see how you fit in. And I'm always trying to do that with my children is to enable them to build their own relationships. Yeah, I highly recommend that you guys listening check out her column. It's called Raising Rippers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, it's pretty cool. And like, I'm going to be a new parent. Um, and oh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just actually I just put online like yesterday, so that's it's kind amazing. Of, <laughs> but like, all the things that you've said have been really helpful for me. And some of the things that I've thought about are things that you've written about. Like, I want to be having adventures outside on the weekend with my kids or kid. Mm-hmm. And how do you correlate that with organized sports, which is in one of your really popular oh, columns? Yeah. And like that's an ongoing struggle, right? Yeah. You and, need adventure time and free time, but then sports are good too. Yeah. And there, there's just, I, I've just started barely going through some of your articles, but like most people listening to this are probably parents, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's going to be a lot of value for them with that column. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I sort of just written, and this is the way I really do write is like, I just write from my life. I write what I'm living and I live what I'm writing. And there's this kind of this great convergence of the two, but I have written a lot about getting kids outside. And I think the best advice I can give is just start early and go often. And by early, I mean like right away, you know, if you're really training yourself more than the baby is going to get, you know, cause people, when I, my husband and I would take our girls into, onto rivers on, you know, mellow river trips, which, you know, was within our comfort zone, but people were like, are you nuts? And sometimes I got criticism and they were like, the kid's never going to remember this. Why are you taking them out? And, and my answer is just that at that point, you're training yourself and your partner to like, you know, get out there that it's always worth it. Right. Even though it's a ton of work when they're babies, tons you know, and it's like you're changing the diaper on the 10th floor, you're nursing, you know, like on the side of a ski mountain or whatnot. So it's a lot of work, but it is so worth it. And then you have these kids who grow up that way and you have pushed yourself to do it. So you're not like, well, we're going to wait till the kid's older, like five or six before we start camping. 
you know, then you get to five or six and then it's a harder sell for the child and yourself. And so if you want to have kind of that outdoor life as a family, I just encourage everyone to start early, start right away. You know, it'll be worth it for sure. Yeah, like I wrote down a quote from you and it says, just because you become a parent doesn't mean you're no longer free. You can keep doing what you love and encourage your children to live this way too. Mm -hmm. And like everybody has comments. Uh, This is, you know, whenever you have a kid or you're going to have a kid, like the comments are already starting and, you know, people are like, oh, like people are like, kiss your freedom goodbye or like your life's about to change, like all those things. And I'm like, well, that might be your opinion, but that's not how I'm going to do it. So when I read what you wrote, I was like, yeah, like that's how I'm thinking. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And that is totally true. It's like that might be their story but it's not going to be mine or not won't necessarily be mine. And I'm getting that too. Like my kids are older now, nine and 11 and um, people are like, Oh my God, teenage years suck or da, da, da. you know, and it's like, it's easy to sort of fall into that storyline and be like, Oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to be hard <laughs> and maybe it will. And maybe it won't. And so it's important to just kind of live the story you want and do it your way and find other, it does help to find friends who sort of have a similar approach because it's always easier to do things kind of with other parents and other kids. So find or kind of create your own group. But the best advice that I got after my first daughter was born, my doctor, it was like, she was like three days old and we were at the newborn checkup and I had tons of questions and, you know, he was like, just take her everywhere just go, just start doing that. And he also said, follow her lead, which has been so great, especially as she gets older. It's like, follow her lead. Like if she's into something, she really wants to do X or Y, let, you know, have that be the motivating factor, not me as a parent forcing her to do, you know, other things. And then the third piece of advice he gave me, which I've sort of succeeded, but often not is don't look anything up on the internet. (laughs) And, um, that was really actually like, he was sort of being like, he obviously didn't know that my father was going to die and I was going to get health anxiety, but it was this kind of predictive thing that, you know, I, when my dad was dying, I looked everything up, every symptom I had, any pain. And it was like a rabbit hole of nightmare. And so I try not to, you know, Google anything about my children. If I find myself worried about something or their health or whatnot, (laughs) because you can find a lot of stuff you don't want to know about. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely learned that in my first trimester, which there's a lot of anxiety. I had yeah, the the most anxiety I've ever had in my life. And it's because of stupid Google and my like, Oh, gosh, incessant need to like, look everything up. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Just take my doctor's advice. And he literally said verbatim, whatever you do, don't look it up on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's hard because you have all these incredible, you know, these things going on in your body. And, you know, I had two pregnancies, and they were both amazing. And I was fortunate. But the second one, had so much more worry around it because I knew more, right? I'd gone through it the first time and I was like, oh my God, I, I'm making this baby inside and she's going to come out with fingernails. And like, that seemed incredible to me. And so when she was born, you know, so the second time around, I knew too much and I knew what was at stake. And um, also I was a little bit older. And so I got every like test in the book. And, you know, when you're under a microscope like that, it's so, so natural for your mind to go through all these scenarios, especially when you're pregnant, you've got like different hormones happening. And so I totally relate to that. I think it's a higher anxiety. Pregnancy is higher anxiety now because there's just more information. You know, there's more, they can know more about your pregnancy. Oh, for sure. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit because I know all the, mm-hmm. all the runners listening are like, talk to her about running. Like you haven't yeah. really talked about running very much. <laughs> I love that, actually. I love that we've been talking about other things because running is obviously a big theme and through line in the book, but it's about so much more. And I think that even if you're not a runner, there's so much to think about and kind of ponder in the book. So many different layers. So when did you start calling yourself a runner? Because I read that you completed your first marathon by accident while you're running Mm -hmm. next to Dean Carnaz's. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So like, when did you start calling yourself a runner or like, say I've been a runner since I was seven, six or seven. I've always identified as a runner, which is really cool because I want to point out, and it's important to people who listen, that when I was seven and I ran my first 10 K race, my first race ever, was a 10 K was, you know, total lark. And I have a, a chapter about this in running home, 
it was just like a crazy idea my dad threw out at us. Like he was not a runner and he wasn't like, go become a runner and like reflect well on me. Or, you know, I'm a runner and I want you to become one. It wasn't like that. He was just like, he was a curious soul and he was like, oh, there's this race. Maybe you want to try it. And, um, my sister and I ran it or like walked it or jogged it and limped it, you know, a combination of all of those things. And as I write in the book, I'm pretty sure we finished last that day. And there, I did not care one bit because that feeling of crossing the finish line and completing something that only moments before had seemed like impossible slash insane slash ludicrous, like was so it stuck with me. It has stuck with me the rest of my life. And that it's that runner's high of like, I just did this thing that I didn't think I could do. So from that day on, I identified myself as a runner. And the cool thing is, is that I did not go on to become a competitive runner. So the two were not, you don't need to be a competitive runner to be a runner or to have that identification as an athlete. And I think that's important, especially now when kids are pushed to compete at a high, high level so early. And it's all of our like parental angst and ego kind of foisted on them or not all of it, but a lot of it can be, you know, that was not what was happening in the seventies and eighties. And after I ran that first race, which was in 1979, I went back and ran the same race every year. And it was at my dad near my dad's farm in Virginia. But the rest of the time I didn't compete. Like I didn't join the track team or cross country, even though I started, you know, doing really well at that race and winning my age group. And I, I knew I was a good runner, but I didn't compete in part because my sister who was older than me got, you know, got to those sports first. And, you know, if you're a sibling and a younger sibling, like there's all that weird dynamic that you go through in your mind of like, well, if my sister's doing it, I have to do something different, right? Part self-preservation and part just like, let's, you know, let's differentiate ourselves. So my sister competed, but nevertheless, I always, even though I wasn't earning the varsity letter, or like competing in college or whatnot, I was always a runner because I ran for a better or, you know, like a deeper reason for me from the inside. And I ran, you know, I, I talk to parents about this often about that intrinsic when it's something is an intrinsic interest, when it's coming from within you versus external pressure, you know, it's, it's me wanting to run versus someone like my mom saying like, why don't you join the track team? You should run, you know? And when it's intrinsic like that, it sticks right? And it's something like I can have a lifelong relationship with running because it was really never about competition. And so for me running now, like the racing is just like the tippiest tippy top of the iceberg, right? There's such a deep foundation in me. And I think that that's actually a real strength for me as a runner and as a competitive runner is that for most of my life, running has been about way more than racing. Yeah. And I mean, as an athlete, it's like who races, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the external validation Ugh. part. And so like, mm -hmm. I love that you said how important it is to come from a place of doing this because you love it and not because it's defining you as a good or bad person or a good or bad athlete. Cause man, when, once you put a race number on, there's a different level of, of like mental challenge to get through your why. And also like, still being able to have fun, even if you're not having a good day out there, like, a quote, yes. quote, I don't want to say good day, because every day is a good day, but a day where you're performing optimally. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And it's hard, like, since I started racing more and having success and winning, it becomes more challenging to stay in that deep centered place of why I run. A lot of why I run is because I'm a writer and running often is what gets me to my desk and running kind of primes the pump for writing. But, you know, if you start winning races, you know, the ego loves to win and it's pretty, it's pretty addictive and it can be pretty easy to slide into that kind of thought pattern of like, well, if I'm not winning, like there's something wrong or, and that can take over. And so I've struggled with that in recent years where it's just, it's like a daily practice to come back to that deep feeling, that intrinsic love of it, which isn't to say that every day is easy, you know, far from it. But I know that if I'm running from within, it is that strong feeling I was talking about that I get when I run on the mountain, you know, I don't turn on my watch. Like I don't care about my pace. I'm just running like purely from a feeling inside. And so 
it, sometimes if you get too far out of yourself and too far into the results or sort of like what people think, oh my gosh. And like in our social media age with <laughs> oh. everyone's like, how many followers do you have? And what's your story? And, and what's your platform? And it's like, oh my gosh, that can pull you out so fast from the intrinsic, right. And get you out into that world of expectation and external validation. So for me, those runs where I don't turn on my watch are so important. And that's why also I have a meditation practice. It's been huge in keeping me balanced. And my meditation practice is very simple. I'm not, I don't have a lot of endurance when it comes to sitting. Like I might manage eight or 10 minutes a bunch of days a week, but not every day, but it really still kind of grounds you in your own reality versus this very sort of illusory, like synthetic world of the outside where, you know, people are measured by their followers or their times, or, you know, lots of people on social media who are runners, I notice have their times in parentheses on their bio. And I always find that interesting because it's like, how we're so much more than those times. Do you know what I mean? And, um, so it's so important to just kind of come back to our deep center and however you're, you can do that, you know, whether it's like turning off your watch or sitting or just doing what you love. Like my big motto in life is just do what moves you like literally do what moves you. Like what's getting you out the door right now? Like right now I'm kind of having this obsession with my mountain bike yes. and I don't really go. Yeah. I don't really go. Like I'm not going on epic rides. I used to be a big time mountain biker, not big time, but like I used to do it all the time. And then I had kids and I was like, I can't keep my bike maintained and my babies <laughs> maintained. I'm also just more of a minimalist, but right now for some reason, like being on my bike is so much fun. So I'll just cruise around the neighborhood. I'll just, you know, follow my nose, really doing what moves me. And I think that's an important piece to stay kind of true to who you are and not who people think you are, who you think you should be. I think we could talk about that for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Totally. The last, the last thing I want to bring up is your smile and flow mantra. Cause I think Mm -hmm. that that, that goes really well into what you were just saying. I saw that you write, you actually have written that on your, is it on your hands? Yeah, I write it on the hand. Yeah. Yeah. With a Sharpie. Yeah. So like, where did that come from and how does that help you? Oh gosh, it came. I wrote it on my hand on the morning of the Leadville 100 last summer. And I had been writing, you know, little notes to myself during races, maybe like three or four races prior. And it was just what would come up in that moment, like pre-dawn, I'm in the kitchen eating my oatmeal. Like, what is the feeling I want to take with me into the day? And so it wasn't, again, premeditated. You're probably getting, you know, the sense which is true that like, I really do operate from just that intuitive place. So it was what would come up for me. And with Leadville, the smile and flow, I had been in Leadville in June, like maybe eight weeks before the race doing a training camp and running on the course. And I, the first day of that, it was three days. The first day we'd done 26 mile run and I felt good. I, you know, but I was constantly looking at my watch and trying to figure out how far we'd gone. I don't think I'd started my watch, but I was just looking at the time and I was just always trying to rush through the run and get finished. And it was a fine run. Like, you know, I, I ran well, but I didn't have the feeling I wanted. I felt sort of like I'd been rushing and not present. And so that night I just made a decision that the next day I would let go of time and just sort of try to derive my energy from the mountains and the beauty of the landscape and the energy of, of the mountains and the other runners. So I turned off my watch and I let go. I didn't even look at what time it was. And I had the most magnificent run. Like I just felt like I was floating. I had tapped into something larger. It was hard to articulate, but when I was coming down and I was finishing the run, it was not a race. It was just a training run, but there was a person near me who I'd passed on the long climb up Hope Pass. And, um, when I got to the top and was running down, I I felt for sure that he would catch me because I'm pretty conservative on the downhills. And I was like, Oh, he's going to come up any minute. And I got to the finish and he didn't, he hadn't caught me, but he came in like one minute later and he was like, where is your motor? And I laughed and I just said in the river beneath my feet, which sounded so nuts. And I don't even know where that answer came from, but that's what it felt like that I was riding some current some river in my feet and I was just flowing with the mountains. 
I knew then that I had gotten the feeling that I would want to try to recreate on race day, that that was the feeling I wanted in my mind and my heart and my muscle memory. And so it's always good before a race, like when you have one of those days where you feel like everything's clicking to kind of note it and to say like, oh, this is what I want. This is a feeling I'm going to have on race day, flag it in your brain. And then you can kind of come back to it. And so I knew I wanted to flow and that word flow just came to me on race day. So I wrote that. And then the smiling is actually like a science. There's a science behind smiling. It dulls. When you smile, it tricks your brain into thinking that you are enjoying something and it dulls perceived effort or pain. And I had experimented with that in a race in the spring where I had written relax on my hand And when I was able to relax, like, oh my God, the race got so much easier. And I also ran a a great race that day. And so the smile just kind of came as part of the flow. And what happened though, when I was running Leadville, my race goal or strategy was just to try to stay in flow as long as possible for as many hours as possible. And I knew I would pop out. I was like, I figured that I was going to come out of it. But if I could stay in flow for as long as possible, I'd have a good day. But when I wrote smile down, what I didn't realize is that the smiling and the flowing becomes this feedback loop. So the more I smiled, the more I felt like I was in flow. And the more I flowed, the more I smiled. And I would just come into aid stations just beaming, like super genuine. And then the crowd got involved and they were smiling. And so it's just this great positive energy. And I've used it ever, you know, I've used it since, but the Zen, you know, the Zen person in me doesn't want to get too attached to that because when we attach and try to hold on to something, you know, we can suffer from it. So I'm open to other mantras, but I really love that one because it works. Yeah. I love the smile thing as well. Like I'm definitely a smiler while I'm racing for all of those reasons. Mm -hmm. An interesting criticism that has been given to me about the smiling is people think that I'm not taking it seriously because I'm smiling or because I'm (sighs) singing a song or like yelling or being enthusiastic. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like sad for them. (laughs) Yeah. Like, Oh, you're not taking this seriously. And like racing Uh, or, or like taking on challenges doesn't need to be this thing where you're just like so intense and like grumpy and like you can suffering, like you can be smiling and focused and kicking butt at the same time. Oh my gosh. I'm like that. I'm really social when I run, not all the time, but like in a race, I'll talk to anyone. If there's people around me, it helps me calm my nerves or pass the time. And I like talking to people. I'm also like a big time whooper. Like I'll just be like, yeah, <laughs> as I'm running. And part of that is, is like joy. And I write about this in running home, but sometimes it's also a way to regulate my breath. Like if I'm going up a steep climb, I'm like, woo, you know, it's like to get my breath settled. I think, and and definitely sometimes the smiling is more like a grimace if I'm trying to force myself to smile because (laughs) I want to feel better, but that works too. And I find that funny that people would criticize you. Like it should be fun. I mean, not, not every minute, but like, God, let's not take ourselves so seriously because (laughs) there's other things in life, right? Like it's better if it's fun. We do better. Like our performance will be better and we'll want to stick with it more. So I wanted to talk to you about the importance of legacy because I feel like your book was a really awesome tribute to your father's legacy and Mm -hmm. all the work that you've been doing is, you know, things that you're leaving behind. But for you, like, what do you want your legacy to be? And I know that that can change over time, but I was just thinking about that a lot. That's an intense question. (laughs) My legacy, I think it's just living in our moments and like living our lives right here and not trying to clutch onto the past or attach to something in the future, but being as present as we can, because life is so beautiful, even when it's painful. And, you know, that's what my, my father's dying taught me. Like, even in that awful fall when he was dying and I felt like I was dying, like there were beautiful moments. And so often we are just rushing through life on our phones, on our screens, on our to-do lists, on our five-year plans. And we miss a lot. And like you said before, we don't get that time back. We don't get those moments back. And the deep, deep satisfaction in life is not going to come from those huge epic days. I mean, there is great lasting value in them, but overall, I think it's like, how do you live your ordinary life? Like every day. And it's not about being passive and letting things happen, right? you know, even if you can let go of sort of wanting specific 
you know, being super goal oriented, that doesn't mean just sitting there and letting life happen. It does mean making steady effort every day and showing up for yourself, even if you don't know where you're going, because that's where the magic happens, I think, is when you stick with it and kind of life takes you in all these strange places. And we would miss them if we were just kind of sticking on the straight and narrow. The other big thing as you know, for legacy, I do think it's so important to listen to our intuition. And we're not really taught how to do that. Or we know maybe as kids, but we forget, you know, as we get to be adults and, you know, we have practical matters, we have to, you know, deal with like putting food on the table and getting kids to school and meeting our deadlines and whatnot. But um, we all have this deep knowing inside and it's strong in us. And um, if we can get quiet enough to hear it or slow down and listen, it will lead us great places. And it's not always, you're not always doing that with your thinking brain, but kind of with your feeling, you know, your heart and that, that intuitive voice inside. It's very powerful. I love it. Well, I think that's a really great place to wrap it up. And what, where's the best uh, place for people to get in touch with you and, and find out more about you? They can find me on Instagram at Katie Arnold and Twitter is at Raising Rippers. And then I'm also on Facebook, Katie Arnold, author, athlete, and my website, katiearnold.net. Awesome. And I have lots of lists of events and book stuff and writing retreats I lead and whatnot. And Katie's also been on a bunch of other running podcasts. So if you guys listening feel like, oh, like we didn't talk about like the actual race of Leadville <laughs> or like Trans yeah, Rockies, yeah, yeah. like you guys can definitely get that and listen to her in other places too. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for your great questions. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. That was pretty sweet. I really enjoyed going back over and listening to this episode. I had pre-recorded a bunch of episodes and it's always fun to get to hear the amazing magic that we came up with on the day of recording. There are some new Moxie and Grit sock designs coming out next week for the holidays. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy those. Thanks so much for being a part of my community and for listening to this podcast. It means the world to me. I'm wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.